good to be back here in the mountains once again. When a sermon time comes, normally there's a lecture with lots of stories, illustrations tying in with different Bible texts. This morning, I decided I wanted to just deal with some of the good issues related to a rainstorm in the Bible, and that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. It's the kind of storm that God wants us to get drenched, and I hope maybe a little bit of drenching occurs here this morning as we go through this study. This morning, I was up just at daybreak, went out into the garden in the orchard in the warmer weather and the longer days. It's kind of nice to do that. And I could see the morning glories starting to come out for the day. We have lots of morning glories. They're always beautiful. The hummingbirds started to come to the feeders after a night's rest, a very fascinating rest that they have. I saw the corn in our garden. We're experimenting with corn in the desert, and it's growing. And we've started to eat some of the corn on the cob. Peaches are on the trees. Almonds are ready to harvest in a couple, three weeks. All these things were manifestations of life. They were manifestations of what God was doing continually. They're manifestations of what goes on in here this morning. With each one of us, we have that special, almost, in fact, it is mysterious issue called life that God has given to us. It's a reminder that there is a God. This morning, I would like to talk about another kind of manifestation, and that's the manifestation of the early and the latter rain. I want to focus mainly on the early rain, but we'll discuss both just a little bit. I have copies of the notes I'm going to be following for each one of you, and if you could pass those out now, I'll be following those notes quite closely, but make, excuse me, making comments as we go along. Josiah, we're not using this middle mic, are we? It's in my way. I'm just going to move it. There we go. Now you folks have a presence and not the mic in front of me. Many illustrations in the Bible relate to the agrarian or agricultural life of those ancient people. A word used over 50 times is harvest. And I saw a lot of things in our garden and orchard this morning that were getting very close to a harvest. It refers not only to crops, but to people who will be gathered up at the end of time for eternity. Luke 10, 2, therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labors unto whose harvest? His harvest. His harvest. 
Revelation 14, 14 and 15. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in the sickle, and reap, for the time is coming to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. A special time has come. Intriguingly, there are different types of harvest in the Bible. Many became prophetic symbols for the end of time. Righteous, the barley harvest begins in the springtime, right at Passover. That's in March to April. And the barley harvest is symbolic of the 144,000 who finish the work, help finish the work. The wheat harvest begins in early summer at the Feast of Weeks, around June. The great multitude that are converted rep is represented by the wheat harvest. But for the harvest to ripen, it requires rain. In the Near East, there were two seasons of rain. Each became different symbols of special pouring of rain on God's people. The early rain, the winter rains, it sprouted and brought to harvest the barley. Next page, the latter rain, the early summer rains, the wheat is already sprouted from those early rains and is now ripened and brought to harvest. The Bible uses those rains as a symbol for the Holy Spirit, being given in a special measure at the very end of time, we have lots of symbols in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. Oil is certainly one of them in both the Old and New Testaments. But here we're talking about a special kind of rain at the very end of time representing his spirit. Applicable to that period of time, we have these Old Testament prophecies. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Hosea 6.1 The Holy Spirit will come to us in a special measure in two very specific ways at the end of time. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble. The day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain. In the Hebrew, it's implied it will be abundant. Reception or correction, rejoice in the promise for the special visit of the Holy Spirit is anticipated. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. That's beautiful. In a promise, Zechariah 10.1, reception of the Holy Spirit must be 
in our petitions, we will receive it from clouds of glory. Joel explains further the symbolic meaning of this rain. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit, Joel 2, 28 and 29. Have those periods of rain for the last day begun is an issue we want to address here this morning. Here's a graph that may be a little hard for some of you to understand. I'll do my best briefly to go over it. Those of you that have had studies with us on Daniel 12 would understand some of the details that's here. Incidentally, Daniel 12 helps us tremendously to understand many things in the book of Revelation. In October, November, the fall of the year is the time that the early rains begins. That occurs right after the Feast of Tabernacles, if you know and understand the seven months of the different feasts. The early rain continues throughout the winter months, symbolizing also the power that is given to the 144,000 in their preparation to help finish the work. And we're going to talk about that preparation momentarily. Then comes the time of Passover, and that is when the barley harvest occurs. Those of you that understand the wave sheaf know that the farmers cannot take in and bring all the barley crop until they have given a wave sheaf of thanksgiving before the Lord in the tabernacle. And then, after that period, the latter rain begins. The mul great multitude is prepared. And then, finally, we have the wheat harvest. Now, underneath that, we have the final preparation to be God's witnesses. The last period of time of the latter rain, and we'll discuss this momentarily, and much of this comes from Daniel 12, lasts three and a half years. The time of trouble, early writings 33, People of God are drawn together during this time. Final work is finished, and Ellen White describes this in a short time, and we clearly know that that will occur in a very brief period of time. This was discussed briefly in our Sabbath school class this morning. During that last three-and-a-half-year period, it begins at Passover time, and then we go for three and a half years, and then it ends in a sabbatical year. And we'll deal with that a little more detailed this afternoon when we talk about the three times of tribulations that are just ahead of us. Now, one of the questions for Adventists, which is very crucial, Adventists, especially fundamental or perhaps conservative Adventists, rely very heavily upon Ellen White, which is wonderful. And she has made a major contribution to our denomination. But one of the challenges that I give to many people in our seminars, and that is the challenge, can you take the things that you quote from her writings and show them from the Bible? I want to show you some of the issues of the early reign from the Bible and from the book of Revelation here this morning. 
It's beautiful when you grasp the way these things unfold in front of us and we can begin to see that so many of the things that Ellen White discusses, and she doesn't always have Bible texts. This is one of the unique things about many of her writings, especially in the Great Controversy series. But many of the things that she talks about is found beautifully unfolded in the scriptures. I refer to you here now on page three, in the middle of the page, Revelation 10, verse 1, to begin this presentation. And I saw another mighty angel. Who is the eye in the book of Revelation? It's John. Over and over again, John has first person. In the book of Daniel, there's really not many first persons until you get to Daniel 8. And then Daniel 8 on, there's a lot of first persons. And he has a lot of emotional times. And so does John also. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Each one of these has very powerful symbols in the prophecies of the book of Revelation, but we'll discuss just a few. And I saw heralds a new visionary scene. In the book of Revelation, John does this very often. And when he says, and I saw, that means something is changing at that particular time. John is on earth observing a mighty angel coming down or descending from heaven. And I have a lot of text here I won't refer to, but it's for your future reference. His attributes are very similar to those of Christ described elsewhere. This picture is contrasting, and this is very important because of the timing of when this is occurring. This is contrasted with the beast or Satan's minions ascending from the bottomless pit, and there's several texts regarding that in the book of Revelation. Both enter Earth's history at its final period. It is very fascinating. There's over 50 instances in the book of Revelation where we find God doing something and Satan and his minions doing something very similar. And this is one of those illustrations right here. Christ figuratively descends to help his people prepare and finish his work. It is the time of the early rain. The reason we know that, and I share this with you and some things we don't have time to go through here this morning, is that Revelation 10 and 11 probably would have been best if they were one chapter. And they really flow one chapter into the other. And we'll hit some of that shortly. He also comes to deliver a timing message unfolded shortly. We'll hit that momentarily in verse 6. Satan symbolically ascends from hell to help his people prepare to finish his work, and Christ is coming down to help his people prepare to finish his work. So we have these uncanny illustrations that are unfolding here as we begin to look at Revelation 10. Top of page four, the descending angel Jesus is felt to be the beginning of an early rain experience. It is a picture of heaven's glory approaching planet Earth 
through the imagery of Jesus, but the question, very crucial, who actually represents Jesus at the end of time? It's the Holy Spirit in the different rain experiences that we want to open up here this morning. In the next chapter, chapter 11, are the three and a half year timing prophecies when the latter rain will be coming. This occurs before that time. It is represented as the early rain experience of the barley harvest for the 144,000. And those who will prophesy again, not for the first time, but prophesy again. And we'll study that text momentarily. John does not now fall down in the presence of divine glory as he did in chapter 1, even as Daniel did more than once. It is preparation time. It is an early Pentecostal experience, as will be seen. Now, here's a very crucial quotation from Alan White. We can derive this from the Bible, but she has elevated our understanding in a very beautiful and simple way. The blessings received under the former reign are needful for only the disciples at the time of Christ. Oh, so there is a former reign experience maybe for us. Okay. The blessings received under the former reign are needful for us to the end. If we do not progress, if we do not place ourselves in an attitude to receive what? To receive both the former and the latter reign, we will lose our souls. Wow. That means when we study the issue of the former and the latter reign, it's a salvic issue. It's an eternal saving issue for us. So it's something we need to grasp the details of what this really represents. Adventists love to talk about the latter reign. Adventists love to quote Ellen White in the many quotations that she has of the latter reign, and there's a lot of them. But how often do we really study and present the issue of the former reign experience? Folks, it's extensive in the Bible. We're just going to hit the surface of it here this morning. Before we can receive the latter rain, we have to have a former rain experience. Verse 2 of this same chapter. And he had in his hand a little book. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. We could spend an hour literally with each one of these verses. There's so much in them but we're just going to hit the tops of the surface of the waves that are passing in front of us. And he had in his hand a little open book. Many with scholarly arguments claim that this little book must be the same as the seven-sealed scroll that Christ received from God the Father in Revelation 5. But there's one marked issue that nullifies that conclusion. That seven-sealed scroll cannot be opened until after the second coming. It has seven numbered seals which are open sequentially. Jesus arrives during the sixth seal. This open little book in Christ's hands relates to a time immediately preceding a 42-month period. That's in the next chapter, those two, verses 2 and 3. 
which occurs before the second advent, they cannot be the same. Some say this must be perhaps the book of life. Well, why would the angel come down and present the book of life? And the book of life was never sealed in the Bible. There's no record of that. There is one biblical scroll prophecy that was sealed to be opened at the time of the end. That Danelic sealing meant a delay in understanding these messages until the time of the end. The next page. Later he noted, but thou, O Daniel, this is in Daniel 12, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time that Babylon falls, even until the time that Medo-Persia falls. Very specifically, Gabriel said it once and Jesus said it once in Revelation 12, and that is seal it until the very time of the end. And then many will run to and fro and knowledge should be increased. That doesn't mean knowledge of technology. It means knowledge related to understanding prophecy and the end of time. The feet on the earth and sea means the whole world is now under the obligation and guidance of that Danelic message or Daniel's message. Now we move on. This angel, again, keep in mind we have an early rain experience. There's something that Jesus is coming down symbolically that we must understand and we must learn to be prepared for witnessing, which is in the next chapter. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's verses 5 and 6a. Here's something very interesting, very profound. In Daniel 12, 7, Jesus raised both hands and took an oath declaration in his father's name. The right hand is like any courtroom promise, and that held true way back into the B.C. era. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But when the left hand was raised, it always meant I pledge my blood that what I'm about ready to say is true. Fascinating. And here we are, Christ, in Revelation 10, symbolically. He's raising his right hand. He holds a little book in his left hand. What has happened? He's already shed his blood. So he only has his right hand to raise. But once again, he has his hand raised which means he's pledging that what is unfolding in these prophecies, what we need to understand in the unsealed little book of Daniel and how the fulfillment will unfold in the next chapter is 100% true and needs to be understood. Here Jesus holds an unsealed prophecy with its stunning narratives and raises only his right hand to make another divine oath Incidentally, in the Bible, there are quite a few places where we find two divine beings making oaths with each other. And we can be sure that when we see that, whatever is going on, whatever is being said, is something very sacred and, excuse me, very solemn. Next verse, verse 6b, 
who created the heavens and all that in them is and the earth and all that in them is and the sea and all that is in it and said there will be no more delay. This is a very profound verse. This is a moment of supreme solemnity. Two gods are personally engaged in a covenant oath, a judicial gesture regarding the time of prophetic fulfillment, answering the how long. And if you haven't studied Hebrew in the issue of how long, folks, it's profound. Twice in the book of Daniel, from Daniel 8 through 12, the question in Hebrew of how long had come up. One was Gabriel in Daniel 8, verse 13. And the other is Daniel 12, verse 5 and 6. Daniel is asking Christ the question, how long? And now we have an answer. This is the answer to that cry in the book of Daniel. It would take me an hour to describe what I just said. But it's very profound. Jesus is now saying, and he's doing it under oath, there will be no longer any delay soon. It's in the future tense, in the proleptic uh, tense here. Just to let you know, it means it's about ready to happen. The picture of John now paints describes the father tells us of his characteristics that we are to associate with this oath, who created heaven and all it contains, created the earth and all it contains, who created the sea and all it contains. This guarantee of the fulfillment is as real as all created matter known to man. Does that mean something? It's very profound. Every one of these little tiny phrases and what's being expressed has deep spiritual and theological meaning for us to understand and grasp. Angel Jesus now conveys a stunning information. There's the Greek there. that There will be no longer be a delay. In the context of the next verse in chapter, when the three and a half years period begins, which shortly will be in the no longer delay point in time, a grand eschatologic event will quickly follow. And that's the seventh trumpet. That's in the verse 7, which talks about that. Some tarrying time or delay is about to end. Incidentally, I use mainly King James in the biblical research that we do, but it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference as to what you're studying, except if you go deep occasionally. The King James Version does not have the word delay. The newer translations have accurately added that. And the implication of what Jesus is saying under oath is that the question of the how long that was entertained way back in Daniel's day is now about ready to be fulfilled. Graphically, this is what it looks like. There's a clock on hold and the Bible calls that clock the tarrying time. Jesus now prophesies a delay is about to end, 10.6. That means the tarrying time will shortly end. And there's a couple verses that talks about tarrying time. There's many. And this alludes to the completion of Daniel 9.24. Very, very fascinating. The tarrying time then proceeds where the little star is, is where we are at right now. 
a point reaches that this prophecy will begin. The onset of what Daniel also calls is the appointed time. Then the tribulation, the little time of trouble, which we'll talk about extensively this afternoon, time times and a half, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, will begin as a little time of trouble. Again, for those of you that haven't heard presentations and deeper studies on Daniel 12, this timing issue may be a little challenge to you, but you're welcome to see me afterwards and I'd be happy to chat with you. Now we move forward to verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. There are two meanings to Adventists to this little prophecy. There's a historical meeting that we understand that occurred around the time of the disappointment, and there is also a very end time meeting. And the greater emphasis here in Revelation relates to the very end of time. And again, I'd be happy to chat with some of you that haven't heard some of the presentations in the past. And the voice which I heard from heaven again spake to me again. The voice that John originally heard was that of God the Father, asking him to seal up the seven thunder narrative and not write it down. Incidentally, of all the research that has been done within our church and outside of our church on the issue of the seven thunders, there's still a mystery. There's a lot of presentations as to what it likely will be in our work and our research. We have done some presentations which appear to be but we must be very cautious and say that there's issues about the thunders that still remain mysterious to us. John is in the presence of Jesus who's holding the little open book. He observed Christ's oath and message. Now God the Father gives John this new command, go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. A similar commission was given to Ezekiel regarding another scroll in Ezekiel 2 and 3. We are reminded that the scroll remains open in Christ's hand. Its contents are available to any student, to the church, and even to the whole world now for study. The unsealed visions of Daniel, and for those of you that know Hebrew, it's the Hahazon portions, can now be understood. For the third time, it's noted that this angel is standing on the sea and the earth. It is a point in time when Christ's global authority is being expressed. It is associated with that open book and antedating earth's last three and a half years, which is noted again in the next chapter. It also precedes the judgment of the living, which is very interesting a study in itself in verse 1 of chapter 11. When might that be? We are in that time, which is another study, anticipating that very end to begin 
can deal, deal with this a little bit more deeply this afternoon in our studies. John is now taking possession of that scroll. This must be during a time of special rain experience. To imbibe the word which has been sealed means that the Spirit's presence is there to lead into that truth. The sequence now that is unfolding, we have had a sealed portion of Daniel. Incidentally, Ellen White alludes to this little open book as being the unsealed portion. She doesn't elaborate a lot, but Second Selected Messages, page 105, she alludes to that. Christ opens or unseals the book. We don't have any recollection in the prophecies about that, but it obviously occurs. In Christ's hand, ready to be taken and studied, God invites John to take and eat a commission. Received by man, it follows God's request. Eating means it is being understood. And then the command is given to John after he has eaten, after he has imbibed it, go prophesy for the first time. That's right. It's not. This is a replication prophecy. We have a minor prophecy fulfillment historically. And that is true so often in these prophetic scriptures but we have a greater fulfillment at the very end of time. Go and prophesy again. Here is a last day message that is to go out to the whole world. How do we know that it's to the whole world? Because Christ has his feet on the earth and the sea, representing a global message that is to go forth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. It's very fascinating. There's some dynamics of this where he has to go to angel Jesus to get this little book. There's an effort on his part. And he said unto me, take it and eat it, and it shall be thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was just as God had said. Just as angel Jesus predicted, the taste was wonderful. The next page. When internalized, it was brought bitter opposition and reproach as seen from Ezekiel's account. It is assumed that the early sharing of this prophecy within the church, the body should be preparing for that first angel's message brings resistance and a bitter experience. And that's a study in itself. We'll hit that a little bit again this afternoon as to why this occurs. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The implication suggests that both angel Jesus and God the Father ordered him to prophesy to those who have not yet responded to the gospel. The imperative is global. It is a divine must to the remnant witnesses. This type of list of people seems very simplistic. We read it over and over again. But this type of list is mentioned seven times in Revelation. It alludes to the nations in rebellion against God and his people. The whole world must hear the Gospels. And part of that relates to the unsealed portion of the book of Daniel. Again, if you have studied Daniel 8 through 12, especially the Hahazon, 
you realize how contemporary those chapters are for us today, right now. God wants the 144,000 to be rain-soaked with the early rain in a preparation to be his witnesses. What have we observed to this point in time? All must have an early rain experience before they can receive the latter rain, which occurs in the next chapter. The message to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, highlight our individual responsibilities to God, vis-a-vis -vis churches. The unsealed portion of Daniel must be known to become his witnesses or to prophesy again. Christ, the Holy Spirit, will come down to us before the last three and a half years to prepare our hearts to grasp these truths, to soak us with the early rain. The end is fully anticipated during this short period. Now, thoughts regarding the latter rain. I'm just going to hit a couple of these. I'm 99% sure that most of you have read these quotations from Alan White. And the latter rain is really a separate study in itself. Some resist and will not be ready. Unless we are daily advancing in the exemplification of the active Christian virtues, we shall not recognize the manifestations of the Spirit in what? The latter rain. If it may be falling on hearts all around us, but we shall not discern or receive it. Why? Because we haven't had an early rain experience. There must be an early rain experience. We may be sure that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, those who, will not, who, those who did not receive and appreciate the early rain will not see or understand the value of the latter rain. Point three, there is to be in the churches a wonderful manifestations of the power of God but it will not move upon those who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and opened the door of the heart by confession and repentance. In the manifestations of that power which lightens the earth in the glory of God, they will see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which arouses their fears. They will brace themselves to resist it because the Lord does not work according to their own ideas and expectations. They will oppose the work. Why? They say, should we... Excuse me, I skipped a line in my mind up here. We should not we know the Spirit of God when we have been in the work so many years. Even church leaders might resist this final work. I'm skipping to the next page now. There's many quotations regarding the incredible power that's going to be coming to us when the latter rain arrives. But it's not the best that we focus our attention fully on the latter rain when we are neglecting the very personal experience of getting the former rain to relate to Jesus Christ on an individual basis and also to plead with God for a deeper understanding of these prophetic truths so that our message, our prophesying again, if you please, is precise and accurate and not based upon any bias or prejudice that we have. 
God doesn't want us to have any umbrellas at that time. And I think maybe even right now. He wants us to be rain-soaked. When might this begin? When did the early rain begin? Again, it takes hours to explain some of these things. There's so much in the Bible in the minutest details. The early rain begins in its great power in the fall of the year. It occurs right after atonement and tabernacles. Is it possible? And again, there's, there could be two hours discussion on this one thing. Is it possible that maybe an unusual rain experience might begin in 2017 in the fall of the year? I hope these things are solemn issues for you. This is a a galloping move through the issue of the latter, or the rains at the end of time, and especially the early rain. But I would plead with each one of you to think about the solemn issue of what it means to be soaked with the early rain so we can understand the end time truths, our understanding of the blood of Jesus Christ and what it does to cleanse us will be deep and we can articulate it and then we will be prepared to whatever God gives us as gifts under the latter rain so we can help finish the work in a very short period of time as we discussed briefly this morning in the Sabbath school class it will go very quickly because God needs to finish that work rapidly at that time so he can come Let us stand for the closing prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have paused to go through a few of your truths in the Bible about the times that we are living in. Father, one of the greatest issues that we all face there's not one of us here that won't have this challenge ahead of us shortly. And that's the final preparation to see Jesus' face. But Father, if we're going to be part of the Marines, the Green Berets that help finish the work and move forward, the 144,000, we each need to have a very special experience with you, not only in getting our own hearts ready for your return, but also to have a knowledge base that our truths that come out of our mouth will be precise, heart-wrenching, heart-convicting, so the world will come to make a decision for eternity one way or the other. Lord, we want to be part of those witnesses but we need to have the deep convictions of what is necessary so our preparation is complete and full. I pray that you bless each person here this morning as this worship hour ends. In Jesus' name we pray.